Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus, and it's a pleasure to have with me today Netscope's Chief Security Officer and Chief Strategy Officer, Jason Clark, as well as the Deputy Chief Information Security Officer, James Robinson. Jason has decades of experience executing successful strategic security programs and business strategies. He's held CISO positions at TIAA, The New York Times, Emerson, Raytheon, and Optiv, and has served on the board of directors for early seeds cybersecurity startups. He's joined by James, who has broad experience in security engineering, architecture, and strategy. Together, they have decades of experience leading cybersecurity programs, which we'll dig into today throughout the session. So let's get started. First off, thank you both for being on the program today, and wanted to start by asking you both, what is exactly Secure Access Service Edge, and how has it evolved in the recent years? So Security Access Service Edge is basically this that, look, we need to focus on this is about secure and access at the same time, right? Versus when we really, I grew up in networking then and security at the same time, right? I, I, I always thought about this, but generally the network side of it thought about my job is to get a user to the app right, in a reliable and fast way, right? Um, and the security team was, I need to secure that data, that user and that app. And so we, you know, those, those, most of those solutions have been historically implemented and those projects have been done separately. What's happened is the data, right, is, is no longer, let's say 50% of the time in the data center and the user is no longer on the network. You, you, you basically need to rethink the perimeter and you needed a kind of a, a really a new edge, right? Or a, a, what Gardner calls a secure access services edge to think about how you get your branches back to your app, your users back to the app, wherever they are, um, or just any apps to apps. Now, SASE in it is, again, the, what you think of it is Gardner came out with something called security service edge, which is the security part of SASE. And then really, if you add SD-WAN, so if you think SSE, which is security service edge, plus SD-WAN, then you have SASE. So it's really the security part and the networking part coming together. But what it's doing is it's taking your perimeter and moving it to the cloud so that's everywhere. So that you basically can achieve what I call security nirvana, where the controls follow the user and the data everywhere they go. Awesome. James, anything you want to add to that piece? Yeah. I mean, many security practitioners and leaders came from kind of two different camps. Some came from AppSec and kind of that background, others came from network background, you know, but in general, I also like to add, you know, we've been working many, many years at designing faster, developing faster, deploying faster, and now we're into consume faster. So what SASE helps us to get to and, and is how do we consume faster and have a more natural experience? Uh, you know, many of the items that we've looked at over the last couple of years still had a legacy type of deployment models. So how do you get that consumption to be more natural? Just like any cloud service, you want to go direct to that um, or as direct as you can and hairpinning, going back to your data center, getting your stack 
of, of security services and then allowing someone to go to the internet is definitely not the way to go. Um, and that type of attack um, or that type of, of usage then combined with attacks that would, uh, you know, use hairpinning or split tunneling or any other um, types of uh, network food that we were doing to get things delivered. Now we're trying to address that. And, and really that's what the new stack and architecture is about is addressing that. So it can be a more natural consumer to service, you know, with, with little or minimal impact to that user transaction. I, I, I'd kind of summarize it in three things. It's, it's essentially, it, it fixes an architecture problem. Um, it fixes a data protection problem because the data, we never really focus on data protection that much because it was just in a data center and we just had a big, hard outer shell, whereas now the data is everywhere and we don't. And third, it fixes a, a business enabling problem that security has always talked about, but we struggle to do, right? Like how do you do three M&As at the same time and you need to have them secured on day one of the acquisition? That was almost impossible in the past. So it solves an architecture problem, a data protection problem, and a business enabling problem. So in that vein, Jason, last time we spoke, you used this term and said security is inverted, and I'm doing air quotes here, security is inverted. How do you think the new approach to security should be today? And, and what is it about security the way it is right now that is inverted? Yeah, the, the inverted part is, or you can also say like it's the upside down world, right? Um, taken from from uh, stranger or, things yeah stranger things it, it's it's that you know we we always again focused on you know our perimeter and that data sitting in the data center and there was a comfort to that like as long as i know you know what what's going on in and out of the data center and that my perimeter is hard then i can be less worried about the inside and obviously as now the data is you know 90 percent of the users are off the network at some point right they're mostly mobile um, and, and most people have more than, you know, two to three to four devices, more than 50% of the, of the apps now are not in the data center. Um, some companies it's 90%, other companies it's, you know, 98% or hundred percent. Right. Um, and that the traffic, this is the interesting thing in the last three years, um, when I looked at data, when I first joined Netscope as an example, and looked at people's web traffic, traffic versus their cloud traffic their cloud traffic was 15 to 20%. And now when I ask any, you know, global 2000 to look at their traffic, it is mostly close to 80% of their traffic is actually cloud. That's going in egress, meaning the other 20% is web, right? So that flip of our apps are outside of our, uh, outside of our data center, right? Um, that's the inversion. So as soon as you do that, you have to kind of flip the way that you think about security. It needs to be focused again on the data, right? Where is the data going? Um, and we'll talk about zero trust later on, right? But it's my, it's my trust of all these things um, and, and having to make a decision around, you know, how much access do you get or do you get access or not? Now, you know, with that being said, I'm also curious to pick both of your brains on how much of the cloud adoption do you think is driven by maybe the digital transformation that got accelerated because of the pandemic that we're in right now? And how much of that do you think would naturally have happened within this timeline? And the second question I have is, do you think we're doing enough to truly understand our attack surface and exposure as an organization? Or are there other things we should be thinking about as well? I would say that 50% acceleration. 
So I would say that, it, you know, I, I was in the middle of writing a book called Security 2025 um, that James and, uh, you know, we and I and a number of others had, had, you know, kind of gone all over the world and interviewed, you know, a thousand people. And this was pre-pandemic. And so we got the book, we've written it. It's like, oh, this is what, and this was, you know, this was in 2020. We were going to publish it. It was everything that was supposed to happen by 2025 per, you know, all of our interviews from all the best CISOs and CTOs and out there. And then everything we said that was going to happen by 2025 happened by 2022. And it, so it significantly accelerated. And when we say the adoption of cloud, but I wouldn't say it necessarily accelerated the adoption of IaaS. It, what it did is it, it significantly accelerated the adoption of SaaS. We saw people go from an average of having 300 SaaS apps to having 2,000 SaaS apps in the same company two years later. And it accelerated the adoption of zero trust network access. And in, because, you know, I, I, VPNs were, were, you know, were breaking, right? I couldn't hairpin everybody out, back. It was a bad user experience. I needed to split tunnel. I needed people to go direct. Now, all of a sudden, I've got this issue where I need to secure people at their home. And I need a, a, a new perimeter that isn't backhauling them, right? Um, so it accelerated those two things, which again, this is the whole reason we're talking about Secure Service Edge and, and SSE. Those got accelerated. I, I don't know how much it accelerated IaaS and, or, or would have, right? I would say the only acceleration that came to IaaS may have been for organizations that decided to put VPN concentrators or scale VPN concentrators there or something or remote development work, you know, something to that, that nature. But I don't, I, I would agree. I don't think that IaaS really sped up as much as SaaS collaboration tools went through the roof. It's actually funny watching, um, not maybe not funny, but now we're seeing all of these, uh, I think they call them now, uh, you know, COVID stocks, stocks that were getting so much charge because of COVID and everything. But now we're getting pulled back. Roku just dropped. Like everyone was in on Roku, Netflix, you know, and on the business side, all the collaboration tools were having the same, you know, the same gains. And now they're they're kind of right sizing and, and coming back, you know, as kind of the the markets and the economy and everything kind of adjust. But then also things start to open back up. You're starting to see those come back a different way. Um, so I, I think the SaaS apps, though, I think it, it accelerated 100. Um, percent you know, I, I would agree with that. Um, I would argue with Jason that it's probably more than 50% acceleration. I would say it was probably greater than that because talking to peers, everyone was falling over and, and they, they couldn't go fast enough. Um, and other people were just going and figuring out their own way, right? So they had business figuring out their own way everywhere. Um, the timeline, that's, that's where everything changed, right? The going example uh, that Jason gave, the 2025, which was a concept, and an idea and an architecture everyone's working to is now, you know, normal. In uh, 2022, 2021, it became normal. Uh, you know, it, it shifted that quickly. Now, when we say, when he, when he, you know, we talk about the IaaS wasn't as accelerated. When we say that, we're talking from a CIO, CISO, CTO perspective inside of a, an organization that's saying, hey, I'm, I'm adopting a lot of SaaS. Now, the reality is, is where is that SaaS hosted? Well, the, you know, it doesn't mean we're not saying that the IaaS, you know, spend didn't go up and get accelerated. I, that did. That clearly did. Let's just look at the growth rates of all of them. Um, but it wasn't directly going from the hands of the CIO to them. I would say the acceleration happened 
them spending the business deciding to go do Workday as an example. And then obviously whatever Workday is using for cloud infrastructure get benefited. The business went to Zencaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that's what we use for recording now. Uh, you know, Speaking of this, both of you are having regular conversations with security leaders out there, and I'm going to come back to the discussion we're having around SaaS. But before I do that, I do want to understand, you know, a lot of you, uh, a lot of the leaders and the conversations I've had with you around threat modeling and how it can truly have a, a big effect in understanding your ecosystem and truly understanding the challenges you're trying to solve at the macro level, but also at the design level has been really a game-changing activity. What advice would you have for security leaders that are trying to start introducing threat modeling into normal practices, especially around software development? I think threat modeling, if, if you built a fundamental practice of threat modeling, it was easy for you to adjust because you, most, most organizations that are doing threat modeling and practicing it uh, already understand the notion of the application and services and, and have already started. So you're just consuming those services and applications differently. I would say if you tried to get into threat modeling uh, right at that time and understanding how the position or the change went from on-prem to cloud and you were adopting at that point, you probably were looking at it and saying, holy cow, this is almost too complex for me to start with in many ways. Because uh, if you look at a project or a project before, you know, may have had one or two applications. Now you have 10, 15 or, you know, seven to 10 applications that you have interconnects and a lot of going on uh, with SSO systems and logging systems. And you, you know, have the complete kind of project. It was very complex. And then all of that being delivered in what's called a, a simplified model of a SaaS, SaaS application or a cloud delivered application, um, probably pretty, pretty difficult to step into. Um, I would say to anyone, you know, don't, don't uh, don't let it you know shy you away or or take you away from it. Still is very very valuable. Um, you know, reach out, catch up. You know, definitely uh, still use it as a fundamental practice. Uh, anyone who is automatically doing or already doing uh, you know threat modeling and and going through, uh, I th I think the change for them was just how do we scale? You know, there there is some more complexity. Cloud you know is is you could you could take some liberties, I would say, when you were uh, within your data center or within an application in the enterprise, you could take some liberties, you could fall back on some standards. Uh, many times, even today, I find that going to SaaS applications and getting the standard for hardening or configuration, uh, you know, is, is very difficult, very tough. Um, that's where, you know, in, in fact, that's where entire uh, new arms of cloud security are starting to be created uh, with, you know, the SSPM uh, you know, the SaaS posture management and such, uh, that, that's starting to be created because there's no real standard to go back to. If I go and I say, well, how do I implement uh, Zoom, you know, and do all the hardening configuration? It doesn't necessarily go back to a, a, a standard that's a CIS benchmark or, or anything like that. Um, and those are coming. They are, you know, they, they'll be there. Uh, but you have to kind of interpret and do a lot of reading and design to be able to go through and understand, do you meet all these different levels? Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of where I would start would be to, to kind of decompose if I was to getting into it today, decompose some of your critical business apps, understand all the interconnectivity and the flow, understand how would you adopt zero trust principles into those. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, try to, try to evolve and, uh, 
you know, get that adoption uh, within your organization and, and then rinse, repeat and do it again for another cloud application. You know, um, James and I, have, we've done a lot of talks together over the last, I think we've worked together for like 14 years now, I think maybe, maybe, yeah, about longer. And he and I did a talk, GE Aviation CISO and his deputy was there. And we did a talk on, on, there's a keynote on, on this topic on threat modeling. And it was, we were just trying to push it. Like everybody, if you're, you know, if you do one thing, do this. Um, and it was funny cause he, he, it was Bob Shooter, right? Bob Shooter cam, comes up to, to James and I, he's like, all right, well, you just ruined my talk. Like, that's what I was going to say. And he's like, never mind, we're going to have to change it all. We're just going to turn this into a workshop. So it's been, obviously we've been talking about it for a, a long time, right? I, I still think that if we break it down to simplest terms on threat modeling, it, 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 like, like the problem we just talked about uh, of what happened with the pandemic, if somebody threat modeled my on-prem user and what are my controls that I have in place and then, and then what are my controls and how effective are those controls, they would be able to model that their controls pre-pandemic and after, even the person sitting on-prem with the same controls, their control, th those, the percentage of effectiveness they could show going down because the traffic and the data has changed. The, 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 those cloud apps versus websites, it's a very different control that you're needing. So all of a sudden they go from having 80, 90% control effectiveness in certain things to 25 to 10. If they can't decode the traffic, if they can't even know what's happening in that user traffic, then they can't do anything. Or if they went and built, and then they compare that to a model of the user from their home that's not being backhauled, right? So that's, it's, it's, it's really that simple that people should be using threat models, but then breaking down the effectiveness of each control and asking themselves, I think on a quarterly basis, or, and then using tools like, you know, like safe breach as an example to, you know, test that on a regular basis. So I just feel like it's something that it's, I don't feel like it's used enough still. I think it's, it's, it's being talked about everywhere, but it, you know, the, just the basics of, I think people overcomplicate it, especially when they start trying to dug, dig into um, application security. Do you think, do you think there is a, more heavy focus when people get started with threat modeling on the application side and people are not doing enough to take things a level higher and look at it at the more macro level, like um, like you mentioned, Jason, right? That if we look at what happened and how our organizations may have evolved to support remote employees and adopting more SaaS solutions, et cetera, the whole attack surface for your organization now looks different than before the lockdown in March of 2020. And are we not doing enough to look at things at the higher level? And are we maybe sometimes digging too much in the weeds at the app level? And how often should we be looking at things from a, a maybe a more higher level lens? I would say yes, 100%. Um, and I think the reason why uh, if you, if you just Google threat model, threat modeling, most of the information that comes back, it's going to be application, application security centric. Um, and so when you first start to consume it or understand it, you're going to, you're going to come back to, oh, I, I need to start here because that's where all the documentation is. Microsoft's done a great job, uh, with stride and, and such. Uh, what I would say is for, for those who are just starting, take any attack that shows up and take your, you know, if you have a CTI team, they're probably already doing this, reconstruct that attack. Understand how did this attack occur? 
and then take that and then say, well, what are my controls against that? And then you would have a good baseline. Uh, what, what makes me proud today is when someone says, hey, did you check out this attack? And my answer back is, yeah, my CTI team, here, here it is. Here's the threat model and here's our position. And here's what we're watching for next. That, that's, that's so valuable to, to leadership. Um, you know, it's, it'd be the same thing for, uh, I would say, Dave Pranich asking one of the sales leaders or a sales leader asking, you know, one of their RDs, well, did you hear about this deal? Or did you hear about something else that w that's going on in the field? Um, or did you hear about this partner or, or this, you know, just something that is really worthy to them, that's intelligence, then, and that person saying, yes, already on top of it. And here's what our position is against it. And here's how we're pushing forward. So, yeah, I would say you, when you when you really start getting into it, all the documentation is going to be geared towards AppSec. But take that documentation, you know, you can take it, read it, look at it, check it out, do whatever. But I would say just start taking and reconstructing attacks that become public. Um, any threats that we're, that we're seeing geo, geopolitically right now, understand your exposure and then start to uh, understand a bit of the tactics or how you would even, uh, you know, attack or, or go about uh, performing an attack and then uh, reconstruct that and understand your position. From there, you're going to get a good baseline and it's a good, good place and a good practice. Um, plus, it's all newsworthy information. So, Well, I have, a, I have a fun interview question I do for anyone who's uh, applying for a job related to threat modeling. And what I do is I define what threat modeling is in, in a very simple, oversimplistic manner, right? Talking about assets and threats and controls. And then I ask them to threat model something that they would not think of threat modeling. And the last interview I did, which was a gentleman that we just hired on our team, uh, was uh, to threat model a hockey helmet. He was uh, he loved playing ice hockey, so I said, "Well, let's pick a product and let's walk about walk through it in a threat model." And he was a little taken aback because he was expecting a software-based question, but I just wanted to see how he thinks and how he approaches a problem and how he can translate something maybe from an application to a physical product and if he could go through the exercise or not. And it's a really fun way to see how people think. I've done I've done similar things with like soccer balls. I've done it with uh, vending machines that are not connected to the internet, just basic old coin-operated vending machine and building a threat model for it and so on and so forth. It's always a good question and, and I really enjoy those exercises. It's funny because um now you have like, I've had this conversation with one person before, but I was presenting to about 150 CIOs and CISOs last year during the pandemic at 6.30 in the morning. And the door behind me that you can see, my freaking three-year-old son walks in naked while I'm on video. And everybody, the whole audience can see him. He's standing behind me. I turn around. I'm like, what What the heck? Like, dude, you're naked. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, can you go to your mom? He goes, dad, I pooped. I need you to wipe my butt. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm literally like in the middle of this massive keynote. And I had to stop and go wipe this butt, you know, because nobody else was up. Uh, so threat model that. I got to I got to go. I'm sure there were controls, threats, and assets involved, right? Um, all, of, all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely something. We, maybe we should have a separate episode where we brainstorm what that threat model would look like of that scenario. Right? He left the door open. That was, that, was yeah. the, that was the problem. He left the door open. No, I didn't lock it. But I mean, the problem was he was up early. He should yeah. be wiping his own butt. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, well, you know, 
the next question I had for both of you was, what are some key challenges you're currently facing and tackling? And um, Jason, we can start with you. If you want to talk about your son and what, him interfering in your calls, we can talk about that. But what are some key challenges in your world today? And, and what do you see people uh, dealing with today? We, we hit on a lot of it, right? I, I think data protection, just the, the rethinking how we think about data and the importance of that and the maturity of our programs around that. I think we've, 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 we're just still infancy maturity. And, and I think that, you know, people think data, they think DLP or they think encryption. And those are two things that, uh, you know, that, that's just, that's, I think, you know, we, we need to move way past that. And, and so I'll, I'll take us to something that is a top, top term in the industry, but I think a lot of people confused about it, which is zero trust. I see that in, I mean, every, every meeting I go into, right. And spend probably a, you know, a thousand meetings a year with, with CIOs and CISOs and, you know, comes up uh, 85, 90% of the time. And, and people either think it's a VPN project, a ZTNA project, or they think it's an, you know, it's an endpoint, you know, or it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, they're talking to CrowdStrike and it's a zero trust project, or they're talking, it's, it's ran by the identity team and it's an Okta project, you know, using these examples, they think in tech versus, you know, the, the, the real goal, right. That there isn't one technology for it, right. That it's a, it's a strategic approach and it's about obviously eliminating implicit trust and, and continuously validating kind of each stage of that, that, that digital interaction. Right. Um, and, and that it's, it's, it's the trust of the user. It's the trust of the network. It's the trust of the app, the device and the cloud infrastructure and all those things coming together to make a, to make a risk-based conditional access decision. And I find that most people are taught that trust is binary. It's either on or off. And it's just, I'm like, that's just, it's just not, it's, you know, it, it's, it's always changing constantly you know, based off of my risk level, right. Or, um, what I'm trying to access or, you know, how, you know, how safe am I, my machine or am I doing something out of the ordinary? So I think that if we can, as an industry kind of all agree on and get everybody thinking broader on this topic and not being so vendor driven. Uh, and, and that, you know, I think that we'd all be in a better place because it, it's really, I actually think it should be renamed to zero trust data access or zero trust data protection. Cause what are we zero trusting to the access to data? What, what's the grand strategy of security protect data. Um, and so, but that, by the way, that's probably the thing we're the most immature at from a, you know, when you look at the, the spectrums of security, right? We've hyper-focused on the threat. Mm -hmm. So James, what about yourself? Where, where, where are some of your challenges today? Uh, I, I mean, I would agree in a lot of the conversations, the, the ZTDA to kind of put a ZT on it, um, you know, it is really a challenge still. Right. And uh, folks are still just coming back and trying to treat it as either access because they already had projects in flight as well. Um, network, because they've seen network, you know, have have the challenges that they had over the last year, um, year or two. Um, and so it was easy for it to move. Uh, but they're not they're not looking at it from a principle kind of view. Right. And and saying, well, what is it that we're actually trying to pull out and trying to solve with this? It's a new it's a new access method. Yes. Um, it's a new network connectivity method, yes, but we're still trying to secure data uh, and, and go go down that path. Um, on the AppSec side, uh, the the conversations I've been having uh, a lot later lately have has really been around 
um, you know, continuing to push, push deeper and deeper and enable that developer experience. I'm happy that it's no longer, I'm trying to support the industry and not call it shift left. Um, but really try to continue to drive into a better developer experience, uh, you know, giving them the tools and the capability, right, right, right at check-in, right at PR, um, or, or right around that time. Um, and then you'll set up your, your audits and your configurations and testing, um, to, to follow that, which were some of the earlier shift left, you know, strategies and technologies that we put in place. Um, so we're still, still having a lot of those, but I, I find that, you know, through the industry folks are in various, various levels of that, various levels of maturity. Um, so that's been a lot of my, my internal, obviously, um, you know, as, as you know, I, I do application security internally, um, you know, some of the dusting off, uh, the, the one kind of fun area that I've been, uh, you know, kicking around thinking about has been, uh, you know, as, as ourselves, as we've adopted, uh, plenty of SaaS applications, um, and, and, uh, kind of forced ourselves early, early on. I've been here for almost four years now. You know, when I got here, we were leveraging SaaS apps for everything. Um, you know, that, that some of the blogs and things I've been working on lately have been around, how do we recover? We, we have kind of the threat protection starting to get defined and, and we can, we can solve for that. We have strategies for it and we have even strategies on zero trust. Um, but what happens when something does occur and you have a project or a business application or multiple business applications that are all tied together through API interactions? And now you got to put all this back together and reconstruct it for recovery. Um, that incident response side is, is uh, you know, very difficult, very hard. And you're asking folks who know how to do forensics imaging and such on a computer um, how to, to really push themselves and, and be able to do that same type of forensics investigation uh, for a SaaS application breach, which is, uh, which is difficult. Um, so that's where, uh, we, you know, we've been putting a lot of, a lot of time and internal kind of, uh, you know, mindset and effort around is, is what, what does that mean? Um, and, and the fun part about doing security, a security company, obviously we're able to take that back into our product teams and influence them. And so, you know, some of the conversations we're having internally on influence is, is really around incident management. Uh, and, and what does that look like within our product that we can help to influence? So those are, those are, you know, some of the things I've been, I've been having conversations about and trying to challenge myself on. Do you see people getting better on the software development side and able to talk the same language as the security people, or are you seeing a shift of security people getting better at communicating with the application teams and, and speaking the same language? Uh, I'd say both. I'd say, I'd say you, you're getting application folks and maybe it's also AppSec or application people that are moving into security. I think the tooling is getting a lot better uh, to, to bring us together as well. Uh, and I would say that you also have, uh, you, you know, folks who are within the application development space that generally they care about this, just like, you know, you ask a good developer if they care about quality, of course, they're going to say yes. Um, so that, you know, security is, is now, you know, one of the top strategies and one of the top focus areas. And so it's caused all of the developers to also, uh, you know, take, take and, and really push on that front a little bit more, or understand that front, um, internally our, our, uh, security warriors is, is what we call them. Um, they're actually embedded folks inside of each individual, uh, security team or inside, sorry, each individual application team. 
um, but they carry a security function. We have uh, monthly meetups. Uh, we we uh, even brand them and give them little logos that are security warrior with a Zen, uh, you know, a Zen ninja on there. Uh, you know, we, we try to do a lot where we evangelize whenever one of them uh, reports or finds a security flaw. We try to evangelize it and let them also show others. So we're really trying to do a lot of that. Um, you know, our strategy to get there uh, was also putting, uh, uh, you know, a deeply dedicated security team within engineering um, and letting them also build those peer relationships along with our CISO peer relationships, you know, and start to really, you know, push on the fact that we have to have that kind of that, that subculture and, and, and then let it you know, really be fostered. Um, and as it gets fostered, then, then teams, you know, they do it, they, they all want to do it. You just have to figure out that enablement of doing so. Um, and you had teams that, that were doing various levels of security, um, but maybe they found their own tools, right? Maybe they were doing hardening, you know, leveraging one tool or hardening scans doing one tool, and then they, they weren't using kind of the, the enterprise tool or the CISO tool set, right? And so um, do we allow it? Yeah, that's the question. Do you allow it or do you deny it? Um, my, my opinion and strategy has always been, you know, if they've taken the ownership and their experience is good, then let them know that they can, they could and should continue to use that. Uh, but we have checks that are also within the pipeline that could cause different results. And so we got to talk about those. Um, so that's, that's how I've always approached it to get that buy-in. Uh, Cause what you don't want to do is, you know, go back to them and tell them, stop using that. Don't use that tool. You know, that's, you know, that's not the right way to do it. Cause all you're doing is kind of shaming them for doing something that's positive, something that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's reinforcing the good behavior, right? Yeah. The, the behavior and the intent is good. The solution they may have chosen or how they're doing it may be different, but what they're trying to accomplish is, is correct. Now, that's, that's really helpful. So beyond security, I always like to talk to my guests about what they like to do outside of work. And I know both of you have very interesting hobbies outside of work. Jason, let's start with you. I understand you're a huge football fan. Can you share with us any memorable games you've attended and, and why they were in particular memorable to you or any other memory around football? I probably have way too many hobbies, uh, too many things that are, that are, that are fun, um, as, as, does, as does James, right? But it's like how, to find the time to do these, that, that's always the, the problem. Um, before taking my first big CISO job, I, I like, was flying planes. I had a 45-foot boat. I was fishing all the time. I was racing my 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 car and I had, I just had a great life. And then I, you know, became a CISO and, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, I think every, every, everybody knows what that's like. Um, it, football wise, you know, I've been to, I think six Super Bowls now. Um, so those are, you know, the, the atmosphere is cool, right? That's say that a lot of times the games can be overrated. Um, but this, this last one was pretty, I think was, was pretty epic. Uh, the, you know, and, but I don't think anything compares to a rivalry of, of college football. I used to, like Florida FSU, that rivalry, um, or or Florida Georgia, those games are just like probably some of the best experiences of my life. But the truth is, is for me, it, it, I love football season because it's all I'm all about fantasy football and daily fantasy football, and uh, so that's so I end up just hyper focusing more on the players than I do um, than the teams nowadays, right? And so I think that's just that's just the um, that's that's what I do on Sundays during football season. Awesome. Well, going beyond football, one thing I really enjoy about Super Bowl is the halftime show. 
what was your favorite halftime show uh, that you've actually maybe seen live? Well, there's, I don't think anything compares to this last last one. I think the fact that they were in they were in L.A., uh, you know, and it was you know Snoop and Dre and and Eminem. I, I just don't think there's anything that and they even you know, went you know gave a shout out to Tupac. I mean, that's that's uh, to me that was epic. Awesome. And James, for from our last conversation, I remember talking about your Airstream camper and all the work you've been doing uh, there. Can you share with us on what you've been doing and, and if there's been any new development there? Uh, a few, well, not a lot of development. So it got cold. Um, so that, that kind of slowed things down a little bit. Uh, I did realize that I needed to pull the Airstream. So I did get a uh, F-250 diesel. Um, I went back country. Uh, I grew up country, went back country. Um, and, and got that and, uh, you know, found out that my wife also likes to drive an F-250 diesel as well. Um, so she's been actually driving the truck more. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of been, uh, where we've, where we've been since, uh, I guess the, the later, you know, late fall into through the winter. Um, it's kind of where we're at football wise. I, I did make it to the Indy Raiders or yeah, the Indy Raiders game. Uh, when the Raiders were supposed to be out of the playoffs and they actually, that was kind of like the seed that got them in. And that was an epic game to go and see live. Um, I got lucky enough. One of our, one of our neighbors had tickets and uh, my son got to go as well. So that was, uh, that was kind of the, uh, the big, the big game I went to this year and it was uh, live and crazy. And then you're in Raiders gear and walking out and you're like one of the only people with Raiders gear. <laughs> At least it was Raiders gear. Uh, most people don't mess with Raiders fans. Um, but, uh, you know, in, unless you're at a KC game, I guess, or a 49ers game or something like that. But for the most part, folks don't mess with, uh, with Raiders fans, but it was, uh, that was an epic game. You know? um, yeah. It's, cool. it's not, it's not the same experience you had that my friend had who ended up wearing a Yankees Jersey at Fenway park to uh to a red sox game yeah. they were not treated as as nicely as as you were i think no they were not no we're pretty nice in indy overall so yeah it was it was uh pretty nice maybe maybe not in the postseason <laughs> there's a lot of flaming going on in the postseason right now um but you know they have to make some decisions so well gentlemen thank you both for your time uh this has been fun and and great chatting with both of you and hopefully we get to see each other in person at some point soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence.